Well, good morning. It is good to see you all here. Thank you for braving the frozen tundra out there. Uh, my hair, I shaved it last night and it's already growing back. So uh, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the way I can actually grow hair back, D-Loach, is just let it be cold all the time and my hair will start growing better. Anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 2, Acts uh, 2. Uh, and as you are flipping there, uh, it is good to see you. Uh, so the past couple weeks, I guess this is week four, uh, we've been in a series uh, called Gospel Driven Church where uh, really we're looking at, um, I don't like to use the word vision that much because that's kind of abstract to me, but uh, abstract to me, but uh, uh, more of like principles and the idea of this is just kind of uh, where we are headed as a church in the direction of what we're focusing on and what's driving us, if you will. And so uh, this morning, uh, what I need to do is I need to kind of like recap. I need to go back and kind of bring us back up to speed uh, to where we're going to be this morning. So last March, uh, as you are all well aware, uh, life changed uh, last March. And uh, every, every facet of life was uh, was touched uh, by uh, last March. And so do you think about uh, your job, the job situations, uh, for some of you, you lost your job, uh, you're still, you're still hoping you get to keep your job now. Uh, so job situations, uh, obviously changed back in, back in March. We think about school, right? You know, will we ever go back to school? Will we be able to be back in person? And for teachers, it's like, how in the world are we going to teach now? We never know, uh, when we're going to meet and when we're not going to meet. And just in a moment, they can tell us, you know, everything changed for, for students, for teenagers. What is school going to look like? And and so many things changed, but not only in in and out from within these walls, but life here changes as well. Church life changes. Uh, when we think about uh, whenever back in March when we stopped meeting in person, and we did that for a few months, and you know began to think, when will we be able to meet in person again? Will we ever to be able to meet in person again? And all these things began to ask, uh, really be questions that we started to ask, and you know. Maybe you began to think and maybe you began to toil over those few months that we weren't meeting and uh, thinking about, how, you know, who am I apart from the, when the church is gathered? Who am I as far as in my relationship with Christ? Uh, who am I if I'm not being able to go to church on Sunday mornings and getting a spiritual pep talk? If you will, how is my relationship with the Lord going to continue to grow and strengthen? Not that, and I'm not saying that you, we don't need church. Obviously, I don't think you can separate Christianity from the church gathering. I think that's, that's, that's obviously, it, it's a must be, but, you know, how, how am I going to continue to grow if I can't go to church on Sunday mornings? And then we really, and I've been honest, we've, we've talked about this, and when it comes to church health, as pastors, as leaders, how do we monitor church health whenever our number one way of monitoring health was taken away from us when we couldn't count seats anymore. Uh, and so, you, you know, how do, we, how do we monitor church health, and, church health and, and monitor church growth? And so what we've began to do over the past few weeks is began to lay out some new framework of thinking of how we as a church uh, are monitoring how we, how we uh, 
how we measure growth, if you will. And uh, as a staff, we've been reading a book called Gospel Driven Church. It's written by uh, Jared Wilson. And so I've made mention of that uh, a few times. And uh, I guess it was three Sundays ago, uh, we laid out five metrics of grace. When it comes to how do we as a church, uh, individually and corporately, how can we monitor our health? How can we, how can we say this is what a healthy church looks like if, if we if we can't just go with surface level metrics as far as seats being filled. And so inside this book, Jared Wilson really adapts a a work by Jonathan Edwards on discerning the Spirit's move uh, within the church. And last uh, three weeks ago, we we, we gave out these five metrics, uh, these five metrics of grace. And, And when I say the word metrics of grace, that may sound weird. How do you measure grace? Can you measure grace? And so when we say metrics of grace, this is what we mean. How would grace have us look at health? How how would grace inform us? uh, What markers would grace produce? What is it that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church when he is moving? The five metrics, number one, that we, like I said, I need to recap, bring us up to speed. The first metric of grace, the first thing that that Jared Wilson writes in his book that that is evident that God is moving, number one, is that there is a growing esteem for Jesus among the people. Whenever God is moving, then Jesus is moving as well. Whenever the Holy Spirit is moving uh, uh, upon, the, upon individuals and upon the church, then there's a, there's a growing esteem for Jesus. Whenever we say growing esteem for Jesus, we're not talking about just an association with. We're talking about that Jesus is raising to a place of honor and, and, and worship and glory in the life of the believer and the church. And the more that the Spirit moves, the more Jesus ele- is elevated in our worship services, in our affections, in our thoughts. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14. He says, the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it clear to you. So scripture teaches us right there, when the Spirit is moving, he's going to point the eyes of the children of God to the Son of God. That whenever the Spirit is moving, naturally Jesus is going to be raised in esteem. The second thing, that the second metric of grace is that there is a discernible spirit of repentance. In scriptures, Roman teaches us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so when the Holy Spirit is moving, there will be a spirit of repentance among the people. Matter of fact, Jesus tells us that about the Holy Spirit as well, right? In John 16, 8. And when he comes to be the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what I've been trying to do over the past month is to kind of give us a different taste in our mouth, if you will, when I say the word repentance. For many of us, when we think about the word repentance, we have this almost a negative connotation when it comes to the word repentance. Now, in salvation, there is a positive action and there's a negative action. And what I mean by that, when you get saved, uh, Scripture says that, that we repent and we have faith. Faith would be the positive action, if you will, turning to Jesus, where repentance would be the negative action and turning away from us. And there's a negative sense to it there. What we see about salvation is that faith and repentance is, uh, is two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. But here's the thing. 
Repentance isn't a singular moment for the believer. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Thesis up to the, to the wall, when he talked about repentance, it wasn't just the moment of salvation. It was the entire life of the believer would be one that's marked by repentance. So listen to me. The Holy Spirit, when he's moving, he, does, he just doesn't uh, bring about sin in the life of unbeliever. Listen to me. When the Holy Spirit is moving, he is making the child of God aware of their sin as well. And so there's a spirit of repentance when the Holy Spirit is moving. Why? Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. We're reminded of sin and its consequences. We specifically see that when we look at the cross and what it cost Christ. We see the horrors of our sin. The Spirit convicts of us of sins. And when I think about the word repentance, I know for me, up until the past really year, it's had this negative thought to it. But here's where God has changed my mindset to the word repentance. Repentance in its that when we repent, it isn't that isn't God's chastisement. That's God's invitation to forgiveness. That's God's invitation for us find redemption. That's invitation for us to, to find unity with the Father. It's an invitation to reconciliation. So when we say there's a spirit of repentance, we're not just saying that we're coming in and preaching hellfire brimstone. What I'm saying is we're preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit is moving in the life of the believer so much that God is continuing to draw people to himself, saved and unsaved. Repentance is a gift from the Father to call us, that when he calls us, to turn to him. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, and it brings us to Jesus. It's the mark of the believer's life. And when the Spirit is moving, and Jesus Christ is being held to a greater esteem, or he's been risen to a greater esteem, at the same time, John says, we're going to be decreasing. God, through the spirit and the beholding of the glory of Christ, is constantly refining the believer's life, transforming the believer's life. And so when the gospel is being preached, this is the, the beauty of preaching the gospel, because that is what God has designed, what we've talked about the past two weeks. It is the message that saves the sinner, but it is also the message that sanctifies the saint. And when the gospel is being preached in love, it creates an atmosphere that we understand that this is the place that I can deal with my sin. Because on the other side of that, there is a heavenly father who loves you and I greatly. The third metric of grace is a dog devotion to the word of God. Say, Justin, how can you say, or how could Jonathan Edwards and Jared Wilson say that when the spirit is moving, that there'd be a dog devotion to the word of God? Because Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit as well. In John 14, 26, it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, what will he do? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So when the spirit of God is moving, it's turning the hearts of the children of God to the word of God. It gives us a greater love for, listen to me, uh, if you love the word of God, let me, let me teach you something this morning. That is the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Uh, apart from the Holy Spirit, this is just an archaic book to me and you. 
But when the Holy Spirit begins to move, it doesn't make this word living. It makes us see this word as living because the word is living regardless if we accept it or not, because it is the word of God. But when the Holy Spirit is moving, we begin to say, man, this is these words have life. This this word will remain forever. And when the Holy Spirit is moving, it takes our eyes. And as, as John says, it anoints our eyes so that so that we can see the living word of God, the spirit causes it to be alive within our own heart. We began began to see the word of God as food, as nourishment for our spiritual lives and even our physical lives. Whenever we begin, when the spirit is moving and what we come to understand that this scripture, we talked about this in the Psalms of Refuge series, this is, you ever thought about when, when the psalmist says that the Lord is my refuge, a refuge is like a legit place you can walk into, right? If, if a tornado is coming, you, a lot of people are building storm shelters now, right? When a tornado is coming, you're going to get into that refuge. Well, how do we as children of God walk into an invisible refuge? It's this. This is the tangible refuge of what God is. And when the spirit is moving, it directs our hearts to the word. And if you want to get real, real two plus two equals four, scripture says that it's impossible to please God without faith. Scripture also teaches that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The people of God and the spirit of God is moving, fall in love with the word of God. The fourth metric of grace that we looked at was an interest in doctrine and theology. Now, when I say doctrine and theology, this morning I wrote these two things down. One of two things maybe are happening right now when I say the word doctrine and theology. Maybe for some of us, our kind of nose goes up and I don't like that. Maybe your nose goes up in privacy. Yeah, I love doctrine and it's all about doctrine. Or maybe your nose goes up, and I don't want to hear nothing about that because you are a victim of somebody else's too zealous doctrine who had no love for anybody. They just want to be sorry. So maybe you go, I don't want to think about that word because I have bad experience with that word. Or when I say the word doctrine and theology, head goes down in despair thinking I'm not smart enough to know doctrine and theology. Or maybe I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a small group leader. Notice this as an interest, not a doctorate in doctrine and theology, not a master's, not even a bachelor's, just an interest, a desire. Because listen to me, our faith is not an irrational or an illogical faith. Our faith is a reasonable faith. And it's predicated on knowledge. And this is what, what what I want us to see is this. The more knowledge that you and I have, it equals greater faith. It's it's this, and you've heard me say this many times, the difference between a conviction and an opinion. You know, when it comes to just reading the Bible, I can begin to have opinions about what I believe. But the more that I study doctrine, the more that I study theology, and the deeper things of God, those opinions become more of a conviction, and those convictions hold on to me versus an opinion that I hold on to. 
That when life takes us to and fro, whenever things we don't understand are happening, there are times that I feel like everything is that I think is, is, is being like sand in my fingers the whole time. What I know about God to be true is holding on to me. It's this age-old conversation between a childlike faith and a childish faith. It's the idea that, you know, we're, we're all called to have a childlike faith. But none of us are called to have a childish faith. Childlike, childlike means that Jesus said, or God says, repent and be baptized. Okay, I will repent and be baptized because that's what God says. God says uh, the sky is blue. I believe the sky is blue because that's a childlike faith. We're all called to a childlike faith, but there's a difference between a childish faith. And here's what I've come to understand. Listen to me in this doctrine of theology. The more mature our thinking of God becomes, the more childlike our faith becomes. The more that I learn about this is who God is, the more I have a childlike faith saying I can trust him with whatever in the world is going on. The higher I see God, the more, my, I say I keep doing this, but the, the more childlike my faith becomes, right? And so we need to know the deep things of God because in doing so, we, we have a greater faith in who he is. The, 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 the Christian life, we say this often, isn't one that, we, that, we, that when we start salvation, we're dependent. And then as we grow mature and as we grow older, we become independent. It's the direct opposite. The, the, the progression of a follower of a Christ life is we start independent, living for ourselves on our own will, in our own way. But as we follow Jesus, we understand we become more and more and more dependent upon him. As we mature, so does our realization of our dependency on him. The spirit of God, when he's moving, turns our eyes to want to know more of who God is. Thankful for me and you, God hasn't left it up to us. No matter what people may say, God has not left it up to us to try to figure out how to know him, love him, please him, and worship him. Wouldn't it be a cruel God who just left it up to us and say, all right, you, you figure out a way to know me, love me, worship me, please me. The good news is that God has revealed those things to us. When the spirit of God is moving, it gives the child of God a desire to know who God is, how God is, why God is, what God is. And God has revealed this to us in his scripture. The, listen to me, the higher the view of God, the greater the worship. The, the deeper the knowledge of God. Not that, not that you can't have a childish faith right now, not worship God, but the more our faith, our more our, mature, our higher thinking of God grows, the greater our worship will as well. The fifth, and I got to move forward because this is all just recap. So the fifth metric of grace is that there's an evident love for God and neighbor. When the Holy Spirit is moving, there will be an evident love for God and neighbor. I've heard it said by many people, especially kind of in today's culture of Christianity that we love God by loving our neighbor. We love God by loving our neighbor, but actually the opposite is true. By loving God, we then love our neighbor. 
By loving God, that, that teaches us to love our neighbor. Us loving our neighbor comes out of a love for God. And, and when, when, when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment, it's love God and, and love others. Those two uh, happen together, right? And when the Spirit moves, so does our affections. When the child of God grows in love for God, they will also grow in love for the neighbor. Why? Because God loves our neighbor. Because we are naturally... And we're naturally self-centered and rebellious towards God and others, right? I know about you, but I know about me. Matter of fact, I definitely know it in this little beautiful girl that's sitting in a pink leopard shirt right here named Evie. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, you know, she's growing, and, and with that comes other things as well. And, and so I was, get, I was saying something to her. I don't know if I was getting on to her or something like that. Uh, and she just immediately says, but daddy, or starts talking back, that kind of deal. And so I do what every parent would do is just, I'm just kidding, I didn't pop her. But what I, what I said was, hey, I, I just, I said, hey, baby, just don't, like, don't, you don't have to talk back to dad. Like, you immediately like, stop and think for a moment before you say something. And her exact words were, but I can't stop my mouth from saying it. <laughs> right? Naturally, we are rebellious people, even at the age of four, towards God and Others, and I know it's just going to probably get worse. Like, I understand that. Naturally, we are selfish people, rebellious people. But when the Spirit of God begins to move amongst the people, so does our, our affections change as well for God and for others. Psalm 37 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. You know what the scripture is teaching us? This scripture is not teaching us that God gives us whatever our hearts desires. This scripture teaches us that God gives the desires, that he places the desires within our heart. That when we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, that he will give us new desires, a desire for God to be glorified and for others to be reconciled to him. So that's the five metrics. Now, why these markers? Why these metrics? And I, I'm going to move quickly through this, the reason why these are the metrics as a church that we want to kind of establish, like this is the metrics for our, our health is because only grace can take us to a place to be able to measure health this way. The second is only grace can empower this type of growth and health. The third is applying these marks, and this is where the rubber is the road for me, applying these marks as metrics requires a courageous self-evaluation. Is there a growing esteem for Jesus in my life? Is there a discernible spirit of repentance in my life? Or am I just okay with whatever sin that's in my life? Am I growing in love for the word of God? Am I, do I have an interest in these things? Do I love God and my neighbor? And here's the deal. It, it requires a courageous self-evaluation through which only grace can secure us. Because the reality is we can start looking at these and go, I must not be a believer Yet grace ushers in and it secures us, secures us. So how do we get there? This is all introduction, by the way. So how do we get to these places? Three reasons, or three ways, dogmatically and explicitly, we do three things. Number one is we see the gospel as central. We see the gospel as central to all things that we do. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I deliver to you a first importance. And this first importance we talked about in the past two weeks isn't in sequential order, but in centrality. And, and, the, and this is the most important thing. We see the gospel as central to all things that we do. The second thing is that we see the gospel as effectual. 
The gospel isn't just something for the moment of salvation. It's something that continues to work in the believer's life. Now, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, which says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both the will and to, to, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, work out what God's working in. And Titus 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 2 Corinthians 3.18, for we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And while we're beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed. We see the gospel as central. It's a central thing. We see the gospel as continually being effectual. The third thing is that we see the gospel as versatile. First Corinthians 15, remember Paul says, the gospel I preached to which you received. That's, that's a past tense in which you stand. It's a present tense. And then we have the present future and by which you are being saved. The gospel is in the entirety of the believer. So why, why the gospel? Why is the gospel central? Why is it the, 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 the thing that drives us? In all ministries, why are we to be explicitly and intentionally gospel-driven? Why? Because only the gospel has the power to change someone. And so this morning, with the time that I have left, I'm going to go quick through this. What we'll begin to see is that the gospel actually informs, instructs, and drives everything that we do, even this Sunday morning worship service. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to see, all right, gospel-driven, we get it. You've been hammering that for the past three weeks. What does that mean for us on Sunday mornings? How does that impact our small groups and our community? How does that affect our mission? How, do we, how, how does this all play out? And so over the next few weeks, that's kind of what we're going to be doing is how the gospel informs, instructs, and drives everything that we do in Acts chapter 2. We have really the, the, uh, the, the early church's worship service, if you will. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, scripture says this. So those who received his word, so those who received his word, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they would be, the, 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 uh, in verse 41, and those who received would be the same they of verse 42. So those who received the word, they were baptized. Now 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and, belong and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me. Father, we do pray now as we look to your word and what, what is a gospel-driven worship service? What is Sunday morning all about? What do we need on a Sunday morning? God, I pray that you, you allow us to see 
as an example, your early church that, that you were leading to, to meet and to, to gather and to worship together, God, you, this is placed in our scripture, in your scripture so that we can, we can learn. They're a model for us. So God, I pray that as we open this word, you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here's a few quick observations on this text. So this is the early church. This is the early church. This is their worship. This is their worship service, if you will. This is their Sunday morning, equivalent to our Sunday morning, if you will. There are just a, quick, a few quick observations that I want to make about this. And so when I say this, I'm, it's going to begin to, you're probably going to be, begin to think about questions as I say things. Uh, so don't write me off real quick. Just stay with me. But as I, as I begin to make these observations, you're probably going to have some flags kick up when I'm re- making these observations, okay? Everybody follow me? Did you stay with me? The first thing that we see, the first observation that I have from this text, and this is going to maybe don't be mad at me when I say this, the worship service existed almost exclusively for the follower of Christ. When we see this, it says, and those who were received were baptized, and then they, that would be the they. And so in this early worship service, this early church, what we see is in this worship service, it existed almost exclusively for the follower of Christ. Now stay with me. Say, so Justin, we're about others. Right? Just stay with me. The, the main focus of the worship service, for the most part, was for the follower of Christ. Number two, what we see in this text, observation, is that it didn't exist primarily as a program for the individual Christian to get their weekly pick-me-up. Right? So we're thinking about gospel-driven church. What does that mean? First of all, when they met, it it was exclusively, mostly for the follower of Christ. And when they came together, it wasn't primarily so that the individual, the individual Christian can come and get his pick-me-up. Man, life's been tough. I need a. I need just need a pep talk. I need. I just need to be excited and encouraged. Now, I, I said primarily. Not, that, that, that doesn't mean we don't have those moments, but primarily, it wasn't that. Rather, the third observation: it was a vital expression of the day-to-day life of the body that was enjoyed in the context of community. And when the worship, when they got together, it was an expression of just the day-to-day life of the body. The gospel, what we see in this passage is the gospel is reconciling news. It unites, listen, this is going to be next week too. The gospel unites an individual sinner first to God and through that union it unites sinners to one another. The gospel isn't, it takes an individual sinner and unites him to God, but also unites him or her to other sinners. There's a unity that begins to happen. So begin to see this corporate, not individualistic, but this corporate thing that begins to be developed because of the gospel. Check the correlation between 41 and 42. Notice how personal salvation quickly gives way into interpersonal relations. It says, and those who were received, they were baptized. So that's individual. And then they. Then they, de- they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. 
And then we see the, the connection as they go. And what we see by the time we get to verse 47, that interpersonal relations has circled all the way back into a greater gospel reconciliation. They were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord continued to add to their numbers. So, maybe, this is just going to be questions that we're asking. Maybe we have an upside-down view of Sunday morning. What if when we came together on Sunday, it wasn't just for a pick-me-up? But what if it's more about we get to get together with people who the gospel has reconciled us together when it reconciled us to God, and we come together to worship this God who has reconciled us to himself? What if Sunday morning was more of a celebration than actual pep rally? Did you catch this? As they were entering, there was praise that was already happening. There was a joy that already happened. There was an excitement that already happened. What didn't have to be welled up within them by by different songs. It It was already there. They were excited when they came in the door. They were excited to get to church on Sunday morning. They looked forward to to not just their individual worship moment, but the opportunity to worship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. So with these observations, we must begin to ask questions as we evaluate our own gathering and our own focus, right? We begin to ask these questions. What is the worship gathering? What is Sunday morning all about? Who's it for? Who's the church? In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 16 and verses 23 and 24, Paul uses a word for those who weren't followers of Christ. He called them outsiders. It's in 1 Corinthians 14. He uses the word outsiders. And and in the context of 14, what he's doing, he's giving instructions in the worship service for those who are followers of Christ, the they's. But in the midst of those instructions, he he, he says to these outsiders. And what he's talking about inside the worship service, he's encouraging the church to be hospitable towards the outsider. To be hospitable towards the outsider. He even says that the service should be clear in order to minimize any confusion in 1 Corinthians 14. He tells us that we should be mindful of the outsider. We should always remember the preciousness of all people and souls and be welcoming with grace and kindness. We are called to reach the lost. We should have a culture that is evangelistically hospitable and welcoming. But listen to me. But the term outsider that Paul uses indicates something to us. The primary worship service shouldn't be designed around the outsider, but saved in mind. You, you begin to see this, this paradigm shift of church. You begin to, and listen to me, that doesn't mean that we just, we don't, we, we, we want to be a place that anybody can come experience a life-changing power of the gospel. And we're going to get to this at the end. Here's, this is the beauty of the simplicity of being gospel-centered and gospel-driven, everything we do. So we're going to get there in a minute. So don't write me off yet. Which now leads me to another question. If the primary worship service should be designed for the saved in mind, not necessarily the outsider specifically, 
Well, what does the saved need? In a worship service on Sunday morning, what is it that the saved need? What, does, what, what are components, what are elements in a worship service that the saved person, the, the child of God, needs in a worship service? And at the same time, still be considerate of the outsider. Here are four elements of a gospel-driven worship service. What does this service look like biblically? Now, listen to me. We are not, we're, not, we're not free to choose to worship God any way that we want to. God has designed ways when the body gets together to worship him. Now, there are, there are irreducible elements. Now, from there, we can fill in the blanks of how many times we don't take communion uh, and, and things like that. But there are four, I believe, elements of gospel-driven worship service that have to be there in every, every worship service on Sunday mornings. Number one, if you're taking notes, is preaching. When I say preaching, you say, we well, said worship, right? You, you're, you're, we're not worshiping right now. You're, you're preaching. No, listen to me. Preaching, it, we need nourishment from the word of God on a constant basis. Acts 2, 42 says that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles. The, now, I don't know if this is in like in first, I think it is. If the, if, the, if the apostles' teaching would be synonymous with the gospel that Paul preached, and he says this gospel is of first importance, I don't think it's by accident that, that the writer of Acts here said, listen, the first thing they did is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The gospel. They didn't have a a binded body like this. They had Old Testament things, obviously, but you know what? Most of it was the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. Matter of fact, a lot of the apostles' doctrine was made up of Old Testament prophecies of Christ and how the person of Christ and the spirit of Christ, how those things fulfilled what the Old Testament talked about. They connected the dots. And so what did they talk? What was the apostles' teaching? It was Jesus and the work that he had done. They devoted themselves to that. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Only when the Spirit moves, the Spirit alone can allow us to see the, the Word of God as food. The Word is central. Preaching a, the preaching of the Word is the centerpiece of the worship gathering. And that's not because you have a great preacher. But it's at this, this moment explicitly is when we are declaratively and authoritatively we're hearing from God. And God speaking to us is more important than us speaking to him. Both of them should be in our minds when we come here on Sunday mornings, but hearing from God is what we want to come. We don't, we're not coming here chasing a feeling or chasing an emotion we're, or a spiritual high. We're, we're chasing the voice of God. We want to hear from God when we gather. The sermon is an act of worship, and it's a call to worship. The, we worship together during the sermon. Listen, my voice shouldn't be the only voice that's being heard. First of all, I'm hoping that as my voice is going out, that God is speaking, right? We want to hear God's voice. Listen to me. I shouldn't be the only one talking in this room when I'm preaching. 
Right? When the Spirit of, listen to me, if the gospel is being preached and the Holy Spirit has something, say amen. Let's worship together as the sermon, as the God is speaking. We Listen to me, this isn't just a moment where there's just silence, but man, this would be a moment where we together say amen. Let it be. God, you're good. I'll go ahead and tell you, the prophet, the louder you get, the louder I'll get. This place should be a place when the word is being preached that there is worship that is happening. And one thing that God is challenging me on is preaching in a way that exalts the gospel in a way that leads you to a place of worshiping God for his great gospel. We need to constantly hear about God and his good news. We need to be called to worship him. We need to be reminded of his faithfulness. We need to be called to turn from our own way and embrace Christ. This preaching uh, that we need and we have to have in this gospel-driven worship service, it, it, it has in mind these five metrics, this filter. Because if we really want to worship God, then true worship must have the right object. And having the right object requires knowing the object. And that comes through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Which means when we come together Listen to me, my main calling isn't to give you a pep talk. It isn't to tell you, hey, everything's, which I will tell you these things. My main job is to hold hide the word of God and to teach its great truths. That's my main job. There's many other things that fall into my, my job responsibilities, but number one, if Justin Holford has a call in his life, apart from being Ashley's husband and those girls' dad, it is to preach the word of God. And preaching requires teaching on doctrine and theology. See, Justin, those things are dry. You just, whoever was preaching of it, that just hasn't been touched by that doctrine and theology. True doctrine and theology produces substantial worship, not just a feel-good emotion, emotional stuff, but substance to our worship. N.T. Wright says it like this. If your idea of God, if your idea of salvation offered in Christ is vague and remote, your idea of worship will be fuzzy and ill-formed. The closer you get to truth, the clearer becomes the beauty, and the more you will find worship welling up within you. That's why theology and worship belong together. The one isn't just a head trip and the other isn't just an emotion. Is that when theology, the more that we know God, the more we preach the unsearchable ways of God, the more we'll find worship. Welling up within us. And faith won't be something vague. It'd be something very rational and logic for it. We'll have a reason for the hope within us. First element of gospel-driven worship is preaching. Number two is praying. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is one way that I'm really convicted about where we are as a church and where we need to go. Now, Felita, she leads our prayer team. I'm thankful for them. But listen to me. If we want God to move here at Crosspoint, it's going to be taking more than just a few people on a prayer team to begin to pray for God to move. 
Not that God doesn't just use one prayer, but man, the prayers of his people, right? Prayer is a defining mark. Uh, Jared Wilson says in his book, the extent to which we are not engaged in prayer is to the extent to which we are relying on our own strength. The experience of the supernaturality of Christianity is impotent without the submission to God and prayer. We forget that this Christianity thing, this gospel thing, this worship thing is a supernatural thing. And apart the spirit of God on our lives and leading us, then we won't experience it. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, we read that not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming for us, but our sufficiency is from God. Every revival in church history is predicated by faithful preaching and fervent, frequent prayer. So I ask the question, why don't we pray much? Mr. Butch, we've talked about that before. Why don't we pray much? Corporately, individually, because we rely on ourselves. We trade in human weaknesses required in prayer in which we confess our dependence for a worship experience trying to summon God and to charge him with making us feel a certain way. Prayer is an expression of dependence. Hey, I believe, listen to me, I believe right now with all of my being that we're headed to, to do the right things. But doing the right things isn't enough. We must do the right things in the Lord's power. Right? In Ezekiel 36, you don't have to flip there. This is an interesting story. I love this passage. Ezekiel, or God calls out Ezekiel, takes him to a valley of dry bones, and tells him to start prophesying to these dry bones. He tells them, bones live and get up. And so what we read, and so Ezekiel does that. Uh, and then we, we see this in verse 7. Uh, Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, there was rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them. Paul's there for a moment. So he's prophesying, these bones are coming up, and they're rattling, and they're making all kind of noise. But then look what he says. But there was no breath in them. Oh, they looked alive. <laughs> they looked like they had it going on. Them, them bones were rattling. There was sinews there. I think that's joints and things like that. I'm not smart, but if I'm wrong, you can tell me later. Oh, but the, the, they literally looked like flesh, like they were coming alive. But uh, Ezekiel said, but there, was, there was no life in them. There was no life in them. They look at verse 14. He says, but I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Oh, here's the picture, church, man. We can look alive. We can even make loud rattles, if you will. But if the breath of God isn't within our midst, then we're nothing but rattling bones. We need the breath of God. And the gospel, what we understand is that we were dead in our sin, just like these valley of dry bones. But God raises us to life. And in doing so, just like he did Adam, in the very beginning where he breathed the breath of life, he, he breathes the spirit within us, causes us to be alive. So we must bathe our services in prayer, our sermons in prayer, our ministries in prayer. I want to ask you this morning, will you commit to joining me in that? Number three, the third element 
of gospel-driven worship is that there's singing. There's preaching, there's praying, and there is singing. Verse 46, 47, day, and 47, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they were praising God, having favor with all people. We, we read a lot about singing in scriptures in Colossians chapter 3. Look at the corporate field of this. Verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's ministry that happens. What we see in Colossians 3 here, there's a, there's a teaching that happens. There's a ministry that happens when the brethren are singing songs over one another. There's something that God does in the worship service whenever the church is together singing. In Romans 15, 5 and 6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see is that when it comes to this worship service together, there was a togetherness. Together they were singing songs and, and praise to God. In today's age in church life, we chase an individual worship experience. But what we see in Scripture, not that that individual worship experience can't happen, but what we see in Scripture, there was a corporate worship experience. There was a corporate of singing together. When we sing corporately, we affirm that we are one. We believe that we are singing. We believe what we are singing regardless of where we are spiritually and emotionally as individuals. We, we are to rehearse great songs of truth about God, and in doing so, we, turn, we tune our hearts to Christ. We sing songs that teach. That's what Colossians 3 talks about. And when, we're singing, when our singing is directed by deep truths of God, we can't help but sing and sing loud. The fourth element, and I'll wrap up with this, the fourth element of gospel-driven worship is that there's eating. There's preaching, there's praying, there's singing, and there's eating. That's what he says, where they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Verse 46, and day by day they entered the temple, breaking bread in their homes. Now, obviously, fellowship and eating meals are a part of life, but specifically what we have in mind here is the Lord's Supper. Is the Lord's Supper. Why? Why the Lord's Supper now? It's really weird about talking about Lord's Supper now because of the pandemic, right? <laughs> like, uh, we did find some uh, little cups that are prepackaged things that we're going to get, and uh, we're going to make that happen. I, COVID can't be a reason why we don't take communion. Why do we need the Lord's Supper? Because we tend to drift. We need a regular reset, a recentering. We need to be reoriented towards Christ's glory in worship through preaching, through prayers, through singing, and specifically through communion. In doing so, we remember, right? Gospel-driven churches are constantly reminding. In doing so, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul says that in doing so, we're proclaiming the gospel. Communion is a biblically prescribed remembering. How often should we do it? 
as often as we can. It'd be great to do it every week. I mean, as often as we can. So just, you know, I have communion. I know I failed on ordering it and getting it here. I've got to order these special things, but I want to be gospel-driven, and I believe an element of a gospel-driven church is that we're constantly visiting the Lord's table. Communion is both personal and corporate. We refocus on the only power that can truly change and sustain us. So we just walk through these elements, right? And there's how I'm closing with this. We're walking, we walk through all these elements of a true, of a gospel-driven worship service. And now my question is, well, what about the outsider? What about the outsider? Because we, 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 we're considerate of the outsider. What about the outsider? Here's the beauty of gospel centrality. Here's the beautiful beauty of gospel-driven worship. You ready? It provides the best picture of biblical worship. Listen to me. It also provides the best opportunity for both the sanctification of the saint and the salvation of the unbeliever. (laughs) That's the beauty and the simplicity of gospel centrality is that in both of those, it's the greatest opportunity for the the sinner to be redeemed and the, the believer to be sanctified. Isn't it crazy? like God almost know what he's talking about. He doesn't need our ingenuity and our excellence. We do bring our excellence. We don't want to bring God half-hearted things, right? But he doesn't need our, our smarts and our intelligence. What he, what he needs is just the thing that he's already prescribed to be preached and to be celebrated and be worshipped and to allow him to do what he does. We're just called to follow that. I know you're getting tired of hearing my voice, so I think, uh, I think this is going to come up on the screen. We don't become more like Christ by focusing on the do's and don'ts of Christianity, but by focusing on the done of Christ's work. And what I believe is that a regular rhythm of these gospel-driven elements and a regular rhythm of meeting together, it will cultivate a community that treasures Christ. It fosters a gospel culture, a gospel culture that glorifies God in Christ and overflows into spirit-led mission. Simplicity. So this morning, I know I've said a lot, and I, hey, at least I've kept you from having to walk out in the cold. At least be thankful about that. Have you trusted in Jesus this morning? Believer, this is whenever you began to pray for, pray for God to, to draw those who need redemption. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Or have you trusted in the gospel? What are you trusting in? When it comes to your stance before God, your standing before God, what, what are you trusting? Is it church membership, church attendance? Good motives? Because I want to tell you good news. Scripture says that we were born dead in our sin, just like the, the valley of dry bones. Matter of fact, if you were to continue to read Ezekiel 36, actually, let me read it. Oh, there went my notes. This is what he says. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, 
They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And God says, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves. Graves, O people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. Listen, the scripture says that we were dead in our sin. We were in the grave spiritually. But there was one who came, his name was Jesus, and he came and he lived a perfect life. He was the son of God. He lived a perfect life. It's as simple as that Christ died for our sins is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He died. He died 100% dead. He dismissed his spirit and he died. He was placed in the grave. Listen to me. As we sang earlier, for three days he was there, then and God robbed the grave. What do we mean by that is that just how he prophesied through Ezekiel that he would open up their graves. There was a grave that was opened 2,000 years ago and it was the grave of the Son of God. He raised on the third day and he ascended on to the right hand and now he says, all who call upon me can be saved. Simple as that. Will you believe and call upon Jesus for salvation? Christian, I know, relate. But will you join me this morning in beginning to pray, bathe our services, our ministries, and all that we do in prayer. The band's gonna come out, they're gonna lead us. If you need to talk, I'll be down here, but I'm gonna ask you to, if you wanna pray, to, to come down forward. I know it's COVID, but let's just, as we bow our knee as a church and begin to pray for God to move, for God to send revival, for God to bring dry bones to life. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have, you have instructed us, you have taught us how to know you, how to love you, enjoy you, to worship you, to please you. God, I pray that we do become a church who focuses on your glory, who wants to bring you glory together I pray that you use this body and our oneness to reach others God we need a breath of fresh air we need your spirit oh spirit come in Christ's name